Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. I am excited again to be studying the Bible with you. I am grateful to have you follow along. I am grateful for your comments and your updates and those of you that have shared this and those of you that have uh, told me, uh, you, you know, you've engaged in conversation with me about some of these ideas and some of what we've learned from the book of Haggai. What a blessing that is. We sure thank you for that and and uh, hope you'll continue to pray for us as of July 30th. The president of Uganda made his announcement that um, the lockdown essentially is continued. Uh, some changes were made that were good. Some changes were not made, and it was very bad. Um, amongst those is the reality that the church still will not be allowed to meet. Um, now, we will not shut down the church. Uh, that doesn't mean we we get to meet in the building the way we would like that, you know, we don't get to do things in, in times like this, the way we want to. And I think we often conflate as Christians coming from the West, coming from America, we conflate the idea that I have a building, I get to meet in my building and uh, a building is a luxury. The, 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 the church throughout the ages, they rarely ever had property and land and buildings and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that it meant as that reality meant as much to me as it has recently, uh, because this time is temporary. The lockdown is temporary. We don't want to make, we don't want to make unnecessary problems, reactionary problems, uh, for a temporary issue when it can be mitigated in other ways for a short time. People are still getting saved. We are still uh, meeting in different ways, not not in the way that we are used to, but in different ways. We're still having church. We're still serving God. People are still getting saved. They're still getting discipled. Uh, they can't stop the work of God. Now, the president thinks he's doing what's best for the country to mitigate this ridiculous virus that I'm I'm so tired of and so frustrated with. Um, his advisors are telling him what they think would be best to to mitigate this situation and and safely move the country forward. And so we're going to try to be mindful of that and and do what we can to serve God. And 
Um, we're, we are going to obey God rather than man. We, we don't care what anyone has to say about that. Um, that that's our mentality. But we can do it with some tact, and we can do it respectfully, and we can do it in a way that, that, um, that doesn't set the entire world on fire because of a temporary setback. It's frustrating. It really is. I, I can't tell you how frustrating it is. I, can't, I couldn't express to you how, fr- you know, we go out on the streets this past week. So from last Wednesday until uh, today, which is Saturday, not, you know, so, so two Wednesdays back until today, Saturday, my wife, Brother Gross, and myself, seven people have come to, to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ through our efforts. And we have no church that we can't say, okay, now let me invite you to church. <laughs> it's, and, and they need that in order to get plugged in and to meet other Ugandans who, who have made the same profession of faith and that are, who, are, who are doing the same in terms of trying to learn the Word of God and live for the Lord. It's, it's essential. Fellowship with the saints is extremely important. And so pray for us as we try and mitigate the unbelievably ridiculous era of COVID-19. Uh, we're hoping that this will pass. Uh, the Ugandan government, however trustworthy anyone deems they are, they are reporting that cases have dropped drastically. Uh, they're reporting that they're doing what they can to try and, again, mitigate the situation and, and, um, and to hopefully, hopefully get rid of this wretched virus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So, back to why you came here. It's a study through the book of Haggai. Uh, We are making our way through the book. We have uh, looked at Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, twice from two different angles. Now we're going to look at a bigger picture. We're going to look at the first message that Haggai preached to Judah, which occupies Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And so we're going to read that, and then we're going to dive into it and take a look at it. I've got a lot of information to cover. I'm going to go as fast as I can. I, I, I want these to be right at an hour. Uh, I'm going to try not to go over that other than, you know, maybe a minute or two. Uh, I prefer to be just a minute or two under that, but we'll do what we can. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, and the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house, therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth. And upon men and upon cattle 
and upon all the labor of the hands. Now, the Lord gave Haggai five messages to preach to Judah. Now, the standard teaching on this is that there were four. And then the men, the, the commentators and the preachers who, who teach that will go on to date, to, they'll go on to divide each message by the date provided for the message. Well, the problem is, is minor. I'm not trying to stir the pot here. I'm just, you know, I want you to understand why I came to the conclusion there were five and not four. If, if you go by the dates, there are five dates and five messages accompany each date. And often the second message is skipped. And we're not looking at that today. I'm just telling you how I came to the conclusion there are five. The second message where God responds to uh, Judah's repentance often gets overlooked and, and doesn't get counted as one of the messages. So that's, that's how I came to the conclusion there are five. I, I'm sticking with it. If you don't like that, I understand. Um, you can record a message or leave a comment or, or do any number of things that, that you know, uh, allow you to prove me I'm wrong. <laughs> now, the Lord gave Haggai five messages to preach to Judah. The first message dealt directly with the current state of the people. God deals with what they have been saying and doing. That's a scary thought. And then he demonstrates the consequences of this approach to life. That's even scarier. God, God, that means God stood back long enough to let them make their decisions, live the way they wanted to live, and then years later came along and said, okay, I want you to see the consequences of, your, of, your, of what you've been saying and what you've been doing. Here it is. Now consider your ways in light of that. Now, these people spent 70 years in captivity because of their failure to worship God in accord with his word. When 70 years was accomplished, the Lord sent them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and restore faithful worship to God. Faithful worship in accord with his word. And they did that. When they got back to Jerusalem, they assembled as one man together, and it says that they restored worship in accord with the law of Moses. We've talked about that many times. Now, as we previously noted, they started strong only to lose motivation when trouble arose. Thus, just a few years into their return, Judah descended back to the attitude of indifference that previously stirred God's wrath. They were living as though Babylon was a distant memory and God's wrath could not be stirred again. Then the Lord raised up Haggai to correct that error. That is not a good way to be thinking. That is, you, you just came back from Babylon not many years past. And you want to toy with God again. Not a good idea. Now, praise the Lord. God does what he always does. He raises up prophets. He sends them to his people. And he says, I want you to tell them. This is what I want you to tell them. I want you to give them their opportunity to repent. Now, most of the time, Judah, Israel, the nation of Israel, they did not repent. Not only did they not repent, but they often attacked God's prophets. In this case, there was great revival and Judah repented. They turned things around, but not until after this first message, which is what we're going to dive into now. Haggai 1 verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The Lord begins his message by informing the people he knows what's been said. The Bible is clear 
Your thoughts, your words, and your deeds will be subject to judgment on that faithful day. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're lost, if you're lost, you're going to be judged and then cast into hell. If you've rejected Jesus Christ, you're going to be judged and be cast into hell. If you've trusted in the Lord, you're going to stand before God and you're going to answer for what you said, what you thought, and what you did as a Christian. Neither one of those sounds delightful. Now, after the Christian is judged, they are rewarded or rewards are removed and they are then taken into heaven and, and to be with the Lord and, you know, all tears will be wiped away. <laughs> uh, so it, it's certainly better to be on the side of the Christian than, than on the side of the one being cast into hell. But either way, it'd be best to stand before God and be judged for your faithfulness as best as we are able to get our thoughts under control, our words under control, our deeds under control, to bring our bodies into subjection, to bring every thought into submission to Christ. That's the way to go. Uh, I would encourage you not to face God without an advocate, without the advocate. <laughs> uh, whether God sees fit to address your sin here and now, or if he waits to the day of judgment, you and I are in desperate need of a mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You, you need Jesus Christ. Don't stand before God without a mediator. It's, it's intimidating enough to consider the idea that your words, your thoughts, and your deeds will be judged. Though you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that is still very intimidating. To think of being judged by God as a lost soul who rejected Jesus Christ, don't toy with God. Don't toy with God. Now, this idea notes the depth of sin in God's eyes, an idea that we need to grasp. We are so shallow, we base the idea of sin on our works. That is, what we do or what we do not do. That, that's the limit. That's the level to which we judge our sin. And, and we often use the American um, penal code <laughs> as, as the, uh, the, the bar. You know, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't, you know, <laughs> we, we, go, we go down the list. I stop at stop signs. I don't run red lights. I, I follow the speed limit. Uh, but not, that's not, that's, you know, it may be sinful for us to violate the, the ordinance of man when God said to obey every ordinance of man, so long as they don't, so long as they don't encourage you to disobey the word of God. But that's not what God's talking about. God will address your thoughts, your words, and your actions, positive or negative, and, and even your motives, the motives behind it all. You need an advocate. You need Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord and you're listening to this, stop right now. Trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that you can have your sins forgiven and your soul saved. And then after you trust in Jesus Christ, now you can work out some of the other finer details. Don't try to work out the details, then come to the Lord. Come to the Lord, get saved, and then let the Bible help you work out the minor details. Don't, don't put the cart before the horse. Now, in Haggai's day, Judah was found wanting. And in their sinful situation, they came up with a means of justification to be in their situation. They justified themselves. They came up with an excuse is, is what it boils down to. They excused their inactivity by claiming the time was not come that the Lord's house should be built. Not a good idea. But we noted in previous broadcasts that when Judah left Babylon, 
okay, as they're getting ready to leave Babylon, these same people, same leadership, same Judah, Cyrus understood it was time to rebuild the house of God. Zerubbabel understood it was time to rebuild the house of God. Jeshua understood it was time to rebuild the house of God. The people of Judah understood it was time to rebuild the house of God. But now suddenly here we are in the book of Haggai. It's like the the time to rebuild the house of, of God is some vagabond traveler who never seems to arrive. He's just roaming the earth, never coming home to Judah. <laughs> They're sitting there, you know, it's just, I, I, don't, I guess it's not time. God told you very clearly at every level of leadership, get, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild my house. And now here you are sitting, you know, you haven't done that. And instead of saying, you know, Lord, we just, the pressure was too hot. The trouble was too hot. We couldn't handle it. So we quit. Instead, you say, you know, we would rebuild that house. We'd do it right now, but it's just not time. Instead of making lame excuses for your inactivity, it's best to just tell God, we dropped the ball. We failed. We repent. We want to get it right. But that's not what they did. Judah's use of this unjustifiable excuse was motivated by divers' opposition when building the temple. The book of Haggai teaches us the existence of opposition does not provide an excuse to disobey God. In your mind, you have set these boundaries. If this happens, I am then justified for not doing what God expects me to do. That's not the case. If God instructed us to do it, we are expected to do it even in the face of opposition. Uh, Judah had, had justified themselves in not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Repeatedly in our New Testament, the Bible indicates it would be good to avoid opposition and persecution as far as we are able. Don't go looking for it. If it shows up and you can mitigate it, mitigate it without compromise. I mean, you, you can't compromise on what God told you to do, but if you can avoid the trouble, avoid the trouble. Don't go looking for it. We get this hothead, 1776, I'm George Washington crossing the Delaware River. I'm going to put down this persecution. That's, that is not a Christian idea. That is a, that is a revolution. That's what revolutionaries do. <laughs> who are fighting for worldly ideologies of political gain. That's not what Christians do who are trying to establish the kingdom of God, who are trying to win souls to Christ, who are trying to spread, who are trying to sow the seed, spread the gospel. We want to avoid opposition if we can. We want to mitigate it if we can. And when that's, when it seems like it's not possible, we endure the persecution and we count ourselves happy and joyful and blessed to be persecuted for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we should not go looking for this, this atmosphere of persecution so that we can go on social media and whine and cry about being persecuted. We don't want the persecution. We don't want to be noticed by governments who will then cause us trouble. That's not the goal. We want to be out of sight, out of mind, doing exactly what God told us to do, winning souls to Christ quietly and uh, under the radar, altering that society so that we can, we can help that country by raising up a, a, a God-fearing people and a Bible-believing Christian who will be maybe, Lord willing, the future leader of that country. Uh, but that, that's, we're not fighting the government, and we're not looking for opposition. But there will be times when such is unavoidable. 
We should count it joy in those moments. But we cannot cease to serve God in the face of this, this opposition that might come up. First of all, at what level of opposition would it be excusable to quit? I mean, is a hard day an excuse to quit? What about death? Okay, we need to go back and talk to all those people who died for the, for the spread of the gospel, who suffered horribly for the spread of the gospel. You know, that, that's, when is it, when, at what level is it acceptable to quit? When can we say, okay, this is, this is pretty bad because this is, this is this bad. Now, this is, I've met my mark. <laughs> I can quit now. How far did Jesus Christ go? So the level at which we can quit because of opposition, it's so subjective, it's so arbitrary that it doesn't exist. We can't quit. Opposition has many levels. Do we stop at the first hint of trouble, just the slightest sign? More often than not, this world opposes itself, but that doesn't stop them from persevering through their own stumbling. Opposition to the work of God should be a standard idea. It's just going to exist. It's what we have to face. Now, secondly, they use this excuse, which was time-related, as an opportunity to formulate an idea that was antithetical to God's instruction. God told Cyrus, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the people, rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Cyrus made that proclamation. He said, okay, go back, get started. So there was no discussion about go back, get started when the time comes. No, go do it now. Go back, get to work. The the time, it's here now. But here the people are saying the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This is nothing more than self-deception, and it's easy to deceive ourselves when we allow life's difficulties to cause us to become indifferent towards God. In, our, in, in the modern age and where the, the, the time that we live in now, we are so weak, so weak and so susceptible to quitting at the slightest possibility of trouble. And we've got to reject that idea. When we don't want to do what is required of us, we find ways to twist God's word to justify our own ideas. And that's, we've got to stop that. You may convince yourself that this is acceptable, but you're only resting the scriptures to your own destruction. And God demonstrated that to, the, to, to Judah in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. He made clear to them, here's the result. You, you decided it wasn't time. I didn't tell you that. I told you to go build the temple. You said it wasn't time, and you, but, but you didn't cease to focus on yourself during this time. And now here are the results. And he made it very clear um, You may convince yourself that it is acceptable, but you're only resting the scriptures to your own destruction. Opposition and difficulty are not an excuse to quit our service to the Lord. Now in Haggai uh, chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God has an unpalatable means of identifying man's hypocrisy. And it's uncanny. It's incredible the way, the way God can just perfectly pinpoint our hypocritical approach to life. 
the Lord notes what the people were saying. The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. Then he asks a dreadfully revealing question. <laughs> he flips the whole thing on its head. How is it that you have no time for God, but you have found plenty of time for self-centered, self-pleasing activity with which to fill that time? You've occupied the time. You don't have time for God, but you found something to occupy that time with. The level of hypocrisy was greatly exposed in the era of COVID-19. Now, we're going to flip this on us for a moment. Uh, I cannot go to church, but I can go to the grocery store. Church is too dangerous, but work poses no real danger at all. Uh, I cannot pass out tracks, but I can, I can pass my money or credit cards to the clerk. We, we, we find these little areas of justification and, like, and, oh man, I feel better about this now. Until God sends somebody along who says, you're a hypocrite. You know, just, just say you don't want to do it. Don't try and make some ridiculous excuse for why you're not doing what you know you should be doing, for what you know God wants you to do. If you don't want to do it, then, then just say you don't want to do it. But don't, don't try to justify yourself. Don't try to justify yourself. That, that, that's not going to work. This begins the deeply personal nature of this book. God, when God starts to pinpoint this, these realities, the book just takes a turn for the very personal. God puts his finger right in their chest. God intends to render the people's excuses inexcusable and even hypocritical. The Lord has a unique, unique way of accomplishing such tasks. <laughs> He's a wise God. It's best not to toy with this wise God or to try and play as though he's dumb. Like he's not going to get it. <laughs> like he's not going to understand if you pull the wool over his eyes. That's not going to happen. So we all have time to live the way we desire. What will be the focus of our living? What is the focus of, of your time? What are you doing with it? You have it. What are you doing with it? Uh, we will focus on ourselves or we will focus on the Lord. We will esteem others better than ourselves or we will focus on our own personal self-esteem. A self-centered, self-absorbed, self-focused, my house is sealed, but the house of God lies waste type of life. Think of the question. Is it time for you? You don't have time for God. You're, you're saying you're admitting openly. Judah is admitting openly. We have this amount of time in a day, but none of it is dedicated to God because the period has not arrived in which it is good for us to separate the time that we have for God. That's not going to end well. That's not a, a line of reasoning that you want to toy with. Um, the excuse was the time has not come, but there was no lack of time no lack of effort, no lack of skill, no lack of materials to focus on themselves. They couldn't accomplish rebuilding the temple, but there was nothing to prevent them from building their own houses. That is the height of hypocrisy. When God points out these realities, it is then followed with an admonition, consider your ways. 
Ideas such as self-focus or self-esteem are closely related to self-conceit. It's nihilism. On different levels, you may not be as, as nihilistic as, say, a, a left-leaning liberal who, who thinks he can become a man or, or, you know, a man who thinks he should become a woman or, or some other ridiculous nihilistic mentality. But self-conceit is a measure. There's a measure of nihilism there. And when you say, I don't have time for God, I only have time for what I want to do, that is self-conceit. That is a nihilistic mentality. So uh, when, when a person or a people take on this mindset, they tend to become personally esteemed dictators. It really, really starts to cross some boundaries you don't want to be crossing. They will demand that others recognize the level to which they have decided to esteem themselves. You need to esteem me as much as I esteem me. And much of what we call today depression is, is, is anxiety. In reality, what they are is these are people who have been told all their life to esteem themselves, and they don't see why the rest of the world isn't esteeming them as highly as they esteem themselves. And that incongruent attitude towards their greatness causes them to become depressed or, or angst or whatever the case may be. Um, this takes on an odd persona in the Christian world. Even God himself is expected to recognize each man's uh, self-prescribed greatness. And God's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. But that hasn't stopped the endless number of self-help books that have the name of God on them that encourage people to adopt this worldly mentality of self-esteem. It's an ungodly, not only is it ungodly, it doesn't work. And I think we've got ample data to prove it doesn't work. Now, this is Judah. We can't focus on God. We don't have time. But, but what were you doing over there? Don't worry about that. <laughs> Well, you can't build the temple. You can't build God's house, but you were building your house. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm focusing on me right now. It's me time. <laughs> and so God's expected to recognize this person's individual greatness, and the rest of the world is expected to, to recognize this person's individual greatness, despite the merit. A man's willingness to live a self-centered life, if noted, was once considered an insult. If, 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 somebody, if somebody came to you and said, you're self-centered, that used to be an insult. You're self-obsessed. You're self-absorbed. That used to be an insult. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Informing someone of such an attitude was meant as a harsh rebuke in the hopes that they would change. Today, it is regarded as a virtue of the highest sort. You just need to, are you sad? If you would love yourself more, if you would just esteem yourself more, you wouldn't be so sad. What a lie. It's probably the source of your sadness. Denying one's subjective and elevated self-esteem is akin to denying the sanctity of human life. But who today would, would deny that? <laughs> who, would deny, who, would, who would deny anybody the right to live today? I would venture to say people who esteem themselves very highly, people who don't want their lives, lives that they esteem very high, 
with, they, they esteem with very high regard. They don't want those lives interrupted by, say, I don't know, a baby. They don't mind committing the act of fornication or adultery that brings that baby into existence, but they'll murder that baby instantly if any aspect of, of the life of that baby is going to interfere with their personal self-perceived greatness. Bunch of devils. Uh, by the way, I have a podcast. It'd be great for you to go and listen to called Abortion, Death by Convenience. That's all it is. You are inconveniencing my self-esteem, my self-absorbed lifestyle, so I'm going to abort the child. It would be better for me to maintain my level, my personal uh, perceived, you know, self-ascribed level of self-esteem and self-love rather than giving up any of that for another human life. <laughs> I'll just abort the child. And, and that's where we are today. Welcome to 2021. This self-absorbed approach to life has made much headway toward the idea that actions should not have consequences. You can't apply consequences to actions. If you do, then it's going to hurt my self-esteem. You don't want to hurt my self-esteem. You don't want to do anything to interfere with, with the love that I have for me. It's, it's, it's ungodly. All men everywhere are admonished to esteem self, despite the merits of applying such esteem to the individual in question. Uh, I hate to tell you, but you're not as great as you think you are. But it would, it would be helpful for you to understand you're nothing. It, it is helpful for, for us to understand what God says we are, a bunch of vile, wretched sinners who need his help. The problem with, with many, many people, the problem that many people are suffering with in, in their daily lives is they hold themselves so highly and, the, and reality keeps informing them that they don't meet this level of esteem and so it depresses them. It causes emotional problems. It causes all sorts of failure and, and issues in their life. You're not going to live up to it. To make matters worse, the person's idea is not subject to the corrective measures provided by those that know us best. Instead, the individual awards themselves these attributes despite reality. It's good to run ideas past people that know you personally. I have some good friends in my life that I can, I can send them things I've written. I can send them my ideas. I can ask them questions about my character, my personality, and I can depend on them to be very honest with me. I need that. That allows me to make adjustments based on people that I know love me and that will think critically about what I'm asking them. Not people who are just looking for an opportunity to bash me. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. I, I, I want good, constructive criticism from people who know and love God, who have an understanding of the Word of God, who can then give me that criticism and help me to adjust accordingly. It doesn't mean that everything they're saying is right. But if I ask five people and there's a common theme, <laughs> uh, it would be foolish for me to go against it. There's, there's safety in a multitude of counselors, and you want to make sure you pick the right counselors, and you want to listen to them. Despite the mountain of evidence that may exist to the contrary, the personal arbiter of esteem has spoken, and all must abide by the dictatorial demands. You will esteem me the way I esteem me, 
or else, or you're a bad person, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're, you're a homophobe, you're any, any number of the, the, the hateful ideologies that, that, that we're going to use to condemn you. And so <laughs> this is what happens when we have a world of people that esteem themselves rather than doing what God says. These ideas have infested the church. Instead of preaching the gospel, evangelists tell people to love themselves. You'll love yourself right to hell. And that evangelist will stand before God and answer for why he didn't tell you the truth and why he misled you and helped you buy into this false ideology that the, that the world has come up with. You don't want any part of that. You don't want any part of that. Surely a greater level of self-love will dissolve all the worldly sorrows and troubles you have. Just esteem yourself more. It's like, it's like a mantra. They keep repeating it over and over. You just got to love yourself. You do love yourself. You go to work, you make money, you eat food, you buy yourself clothes. You do all that because you love yourself. If you didn't love yourself, you wouldn't do any of that. And, and you do. You, you have plenty of self-love. You, that, you, don't, you don't need any more self-love or self-esteem. This, is, this advice has done nothing to help anyone ever in any way. But that hasn't stopped it from being blasted on television, radios, uh, the internet, you name it. Books, articles, essays. Just love yourself. The advice has done nothing to help anyone ever. Man is the source of sin, sorrow, and trouble. How could it be helpful to instruct people to esteem and love such in one? You're the source of sin. How could you love yourself? You know what you've done in the dark. What is there to esteem? So you just want to think about these things properly, and that's not the proper way to think about it. Encouragement to think this way places far more emphasis on man than God intended. I encourage you to read Romans chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. Read them repeatedly. God tells you in this passage, he gives a clear description of what he thinks of man, and it's not good. There's not much there to esteem or to love. So you need to think these things through a, l- a little more definitively. Um, this type of thinking permeates the world and the church. And as long as everyone participates, the imaginary merits of self-absorption give the appearance of happiness and, until everybody shatters, until you have a society of people doped up on antidepressants. Everybody's psyches are weak. They can't handle it. You can't have a discussion about whether a man can call himself a woman or not without being shouted down or people yelling safety or, or you know, your uh, silence is violence or, or your words are violence or whatever. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous at this point because everybody's been taught to love themselves. So whatever ridiculous idea, whatever I, I identify as and have come to accept within me, now it needs to be imposed on the entire world, and the entire world needs to be subject to my random, arbitrary, daily changes of, of self-identity. This is all, this is the depths of self-absorption, of I don't have time for God, I'm thinking about me, I'm focused on me, I'm learning to love me, I'm learning to esteem me. It's an ungodly mentality. 
That is until either reality strikes or a man with a Bible enters the scene. God said to esteem others better than yourself. Why are you telling people to esteem themselves? God said you are to put others ahead of yourself. The world says put yourself ahead of everyone and everything else. It's ungodly. God said set your affections on things above. Why are you telling people to love things here on earth? Consider your ways. You better think this through in light of Scripture. Throughout these worldly ideologies, God's house lies waste, but your houses are nice and sealed. This reference to sealed homes refers to a technique used to take wood of different sorts and seal the houses from outside elements. Solomon's temple was sealed with fir wood, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 5, and the, great, and, and, uh, and the greater house he sealed with fir tree, which he overlaid with fine gold and set thereon palm trees and chains. Jeremiah rebuked people who built their sealed homes unjustly. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 through 14. Uh, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages. Mm. Like free college, like free health care, like take from the rich and give to the poor. Uh, th- these are all ungodly ideas. If you didn't earn it, you don't, you don't get to keep it. If you hire somebody to do a job, you better pay them. Or God might come knocking on your door and, and deal with you. And giveth him not for his work, that saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cutteth him out windows, and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. So this is just a technique, a method they use to seal the house. They, they would go buy wood. We often still do it in some ways today. Uh, you know, we, we have maybe possibly more advanced methods of doing it or, or more, at least more standardized methods of doing it today. But they sealed these houses. They were making nice houses in this day. The walls of Jerusalem were not rebuilt so they could be invaded at any time. They were even scared of the neighbors around them. The temple had not been, re- been rebuilt, so they were not worshiping God. But man, they had nice sealed houses. How foolish is that? That's like building your house, you know, on a cliff of sand, only to have a good rain come by and wash the whole thing away. It's going to fall. You're building sealed houses when you can be invaded at any moment by your adversaries who have been torturing you all this time. It, it makes no sense. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, verse 6 through 7. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. Mm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is the result of the way they had been living. This is what they could expect as a result of their their chosen lifestyle. In verses 6 through 7, the Lord begins to inform them of the consequences of their choices. It quickly becomes apparent that neglecting God as a shortcut for advancement in life is a bad idea. It doesn't work. It turns out to be no shortcut at all. 
Ye have sown much and bring in little. To labor and labor only to find it just does not go as far as it should. Maybe the same amount of labor harbors far less return. Does that sound familiar? Any indication of that in our world today? You eat, but you have not enough. Satisfaction is sought, maybe even diligently, but it is never realized. The appetites of people can never be satiated without God, without a focus on God. This empty pursuit of self-fulfillment, there is ample proof it has a negative end. It does not work. Turn to God. Focus on the Lord. Do what he says. That's where happiness is. That's where joy is. That's, that's where it all comes from. Um, this, this should all sound familiar to you. This self-focused, uh, fulfill, you know, search for, for fulfillment, it, it's empty. The passage goes on to demonstrate how empty life is without God. The choice to enter into this life of satisfying fellowship with God is ours to make. It's no secret we live in an empty consumer society. Modern life is a modern marvel. People have been enabled to look busy and fulfilled without ever coming near that reality. We buy what we don't need, we want with no real desire to have, and distract ourselves with pleasure that brings no enjoyment. People demand to be free, not seek fulfillment, not to seek fulfillment, but rather to seek unending distraction from responsibility. People go through life sleepwalking, barely conscious of what's taking place around them. The children act as though they are adults. The adults relegate themselves to the lives of children. Grown men have established at home elaborate gaming systems whereby they dominate children online in the life-changing pursuit of winning a video game. We have more than we need in nearly every area of life. Americans live in the richest country the world has ever known, yet social media makes the, rea- makes the reality manifest. We are a society of bored and dissatisfied people. This results from a culture that sought endless means of sensual pleasure and rejected the God that so blessed their ability to live these futile lives. Cotton Mather once said, Christianity gave birth to prosperity, and the daughter hath devoured the mother. Rejecting God has consequences. John 6, 27, Jesus said, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. God is displaying those consequences and admonishing us all. In the book of Haggai, he's telling you, when you don't live for me and you use that as an excuse to focus on yourself, there are serious consequences. You need to consider your ways before you do that. Honestly, consider in your life, how often does living in a self-centered manner benefit you in the end? It doesn't. It's superficial. It's fake. You don't get anything real out of it. You don't get anything lasting out of it. Life without God is empty and materialistic. This is, a, this is an obvious outworking of a materialist philosophical approach to life. You need to reject it. It needs to 
go away. It, it can't be a thing in the Christian life. It's either God has the preeminence or my wants and desires have the preeminence. Haggai 1.8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. How do we begin to change this unbiblical and problematic approach to life? <laughs> Just get started serving the Lord. Just get started moving in the right direction. Just get started. No, no more delays. No more self-focus. Little by little, just, just get started. The Lord said, you know, <laughs> forget the elaborate building that Solomon built. I don't even want you to worry about that. Just go up in the mountain, get some wood, come back and do something. Just do something. Anything. I'll be happy. Build a box, call it a temple, I'll be happy. Just do something. And um, you've, you've got to break this, this chain of self-focus. You've got to get away from the influences causing it. Get your nose in the Bible. The basic response here is to realize how far off track we are. And rather than grabbing hold of the basics and getting started in the right direction, people become overwhelmed and they never do any. They just paralyzes them. They're, they're paralyzed and they're unwilling to make a move at all. The Lord says, just start praying. Just, just start. You don't know how to pray. Just start. Just talk to God. Just start reading your Bible. Well, I don't understand it. Just read it. The Lord will help you with that over time. Just get started. Uh, just start making an effort to go to church. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Well, there are a bunch of hypocrites up there. So are you. There's just as much, much hypocrisy sitting in your living room as there is in a church house. That's not an excuse. Just go. Find a Bible-believing church and faithfully attend. Just, just get started. Now, Haggai 1, verses 9 through 11, You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. That's God talking. I blew upon it. I got rid of it. When you brought it home, you were so excited. You had all that money. I, I, I blew it right out the window. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house, therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Think about America right now. Millions of open jobs and nobody's going to work. It's a drought upon the labor. It's a drought upon the labor. That's very interesting. There's plenty of labor to be done. There's plenty of work available. There's a drought of workers. Nobody will show up to do it. The Lord finishes Haggai's message by reiterating the source of their troubles and it was not found in Persian kings or Samaritan adversity. The trouble is not what you think it is. You've got to restructure your thinking and find out what God says the trouble is so that you can actually deal with the real, with the real source of the problem. God said, you looked for much and it came to little. You brought it home and I did blow upon it. What stands out to me here is the word because... To me, that's incredible. God says, you're having these troubles because I caused them. 
They, they are the, they are my response to you. This is my judgment upon the way you have been living. The, the world is structured in such a way when you live contrary to God, it's just going to be harmful to you. It's not a good decision. Lost people who live with biblical principle are successful because they're not living contrary to what God said, at least practically speaking. They mean, they're not going to go to heaven when they die. They're not, they're not saved. But the more biblical principle there is in your life, whether you recognize it to be that or not, the better your life will be. The more you reject God, the more you live against God, the more you fight against God, the more you focus on yourself, the more you're self-absorbed, the more that, that God is neglected and I am elevated, the worse things are going to be for you. Then he continues, therefore, a concluding statement in which God makes very clear why and how they ended up in this state. Therefore, uh, God just tells them, this is why you're here. This is why your money's disappearing. This is why you have no, you're not receiving the fruit of your crops. This is why there's no labor. This is why when you labor, the, the money's not there. It's not going as far as, you, as it should. All this is a result of your neglect of God. And it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I would say many countries in the world, while physically rich, are in a perpetual state of famine. Their people are committing suicide. They have high-paying jobs but drown in debt. They have the greatest medical facilities, but they are as sickly in mind and body as we have ever been. These are countries God blessed and enriched. Then they turn their back on God and now they are suffering the physical, mental, emotional, and economic consequences of life without God. Consider your ways. Make your choice. Is it worth it to turn around and, and, and try trusting in God again as, a, as an individual, as a family, as a, as a society, as a nation, the world as a whole? Can we get enough people to, to return to a focus on God to, to fix the situation that we're in? Not if people aren't out preaching the gospel, not if everybody's focused on themselves. Somebody's got to start breaking away from this, from the course of this world and start following along with God for other people to then start breaking away. And it creates a chain reaction that is very real. I hope you'll try it out. If I can help you with that in any way, please let me know. Send me a message. Leave me a comment. I'll be happy to do anything I can. A lot of your emotional problems come because you don't know God or you know God and you're not living for God. And I would love to help you with that. I'll do anything I can to help you with that. But the choice is yours. You've got to consider your ways and then you've got to be ready to make the changes necessary to get things back on track. Judah did it. Judah did it. And we'll look at Haggai's second message eventually. I'm not sure what I'll uh, record next. But when we look at it, God was so pleased. He said, I am with you. I am with you. I'm going to stir your spirit. I am with you. Um, this is what I'm looking for. And so that, that same reality is available to you and it's, it's available to me. Thank you for listening. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. 
please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.